Here we are, John chapter 3. We'll just look at uh, three verses tonight because they're worthless, uh, our attention. They're stock full of great, great stimulating information. Here's how it begins. John chapter 3, verse 1. It says, now there was a man of the Pharisees. Pharisees, you've heard of them. So whoever this man is, we know a couple things about him right at the outset. He's Jewish because you can't be a Pharisee unless you're a Jew. So he's a Jewish guy, and he's a member of a particular, not a political party, it's more like a religious party, though they had political influence. There were a variety of such parties in ancient Israel. The two principal ones were this group, the Pharisees, and another group called the Sadducees. And what, what distinguished the Pharisees from the others is that they were very, very conservative. There was, there's a lot about the Pharisees you and I would have in common. They had a, a fairly high view of Scripture, for instance. That is to say, the Scripture that was then available to them, the Hebrew Scriptures, the, we would refer to it as the Old Testament, they had a high view of the Scriptures. They took them literally and sought to live by them. And they also had a high view of rabbinical tradition. They believed that when God gave, for instance, the first five books of the Bible to Moses, on Mount Sinai, they believed God also whispered into his ear what came to be known as the oral law. So Moses inscribed some of what God told him, and the rest was whispered into his ear. It wasn't written down, but Moses, the greatest rabbi, passed it on to other rabbis, and that became the traditions of Judaism. So the Pharisees put the oral law on the same level as the written scriptures. So that's a bit of a problem. And, and so they didn't make a distinction between what God said and what man said. In fact, they would be upset if I insinuated there was a difference between the two. They would say that the word of the rabbis, the oral tradition, is as authoritative and divinely inspired as is the written word of God. This was really brought home to me many years ago when I was in the military. I think I probably told you this a few times, but, but here we go again. Um, I was in the military and I got a call uh, from a chaplain and he said, um, Rothberg, call me by my last name. He said, this is Rabbi so-and-so. You're Jewish, right? I said, yes. He was a rabbi who was serving as a chaplain in the military. Kind of unusual, there aren't many orthodox rabbis in the military as a chaplain. He said, my wife and I are inviting all the Jewish personnel on this military installation. There weren't many of us. He said, uh, we're inviting you over to our home to get together and get to know one another. And I said, Rabbi, that is very gracious of you. I would love to come. But in fairness to you, I think I should tell you something about myself. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, I mean, I'll tell you because um, you, you may not approve of, of me and what I believe in, and, you, uh, and I wouldn't want to impose myself on your home without you without you knowing about me. And he said, well, what, what are you? Some, are you like a murderer or something? I said, no, 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 it's nothing like that. It's a, I said, Rabbi, have you ever heard of Jews who believe that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah? He went, oy vey, yeah, I've heard. 
I said, well, I'm one of them. He said, you're right. You will never come into my house. And I said, Rabbi, I'm sorry you feel that way, but I'm glad we got this out beforehand. So that's it. I thought that's, that's it. You, you know, I'm not, I don't got the invitation to dinner. Well, about a week later, I get a call from the same rabbi. Rothberg, rabbi so-and-so, I want you to come down to my office. I want to get together. And I thought, oh, no, this rabbi wants to kill me. <laughs> so I go. I mean, it's the military. He outranked me. You, you, you go. So I showed up to his office, and he said, I told some other rabbis about you, and they told me I used the wrong approach. They told me you've been deceived. You're like in a cult. And uh, my job, instead of closing the door to you, is to extend myself to you to kind of uh, try to win you back. You've been brainwashed, you know what I mean? And so they told me I should study with you and set you right because you're deceived. And, I, and so he said, so we're going to study together, right? Yeah, Rabbi, that is cool. We can study together. So uh, he said to me, so what do you want to study? That's what he says to me. I said, Rabbi, I got a good idea. It's obvious that you and I see things differently, but we both agree that the first book of the Bible written by Moshe Rabbeinu, that means Moses, the great rabbi, Bereshit, that's the book of beginnings, Genesis. We both agree that's God's word. I said, let's study the book of beginnings. Okay, good. Come back on Wednesday, whatever it is, we'll study. So I show up. I thought, this is a cool opportunity. And so we start out, and we're getting into uh, Genesis, and we're reading the passage where it talks about sin committed by our forebears, Adam and Eve, and their efforts to deal with their sin by fashioning an apron of leaves. Remember reading about all that? And um, they took uh, the, uh, the um, garments, the, the skins of an animal to clothe themselves, which is the beginning of the whole system of animal sacrifice, which ultimately points to Jesus, the Lamb of God, who covered for our sin. So I shared this with him, and he's getting real upset. So whenever we got to that point, he would jump up. He would go into another room, I thought, for a gun, but it wasn't. It was a book, which was the codification of the oral law, the rabbi's interpretation of Scripture. And he would pull it off the shelf. And they, the rabbis said, this animal in Genesis did not lose its life. It's, it was just sheared, you know, that kind of thing. But it lived on. And he said, so see, you're wrong, Rothberg. I said, Rabbi, you know what amazes me? That our wise sages would uh, spend so much time on uh, disproving the obvious meaning of the text written by Moses. I said, Rabbi, what you just showed me proved to me even more than ever that our rabbis are wrong about this. And he went crazy. He said, you're talking about our rabbis, our sages. And uh, I, I said, well, Rabbi, let me ask you a question. When the word of the rabbis is in conflict with the word of God, which one are you going to choose? And he went ballistic because he was a modern-day Pharisee and they don't see that the two are ever in conflict. The Word of God, Scripture, they believe is on the same par as the Word of man. You see what I mean? And by the way, that's not unique to Judaism. There are a lot of religions that have extra-biblical authority that they put on an equal par 
with Scripture. When you bring them together, you get a mutation. So you see, he was a modern-day Pharisee. So that's what this fella, we find out his name is Nicodemus. He was like this modern-day rabbi. He believed the Bible, the Word of God is important. So too is the Word of man. The two are not in conflict, and they are supposed to both be submitted to because they have the same level of authority. So that's what this guy is. He's a Jewish guy. He's a Pharisee. We find out his name is Nicodemus. And we find out, furthermore, he was a ruler of the Jews. Now, that's kind of a political sort of a deal. That means he was a member of a body called the Sanhedrin. Have you ever heard of that? Sanhedrin? That was the equivalent in ancient Israel of our modern-day Supreme Court, very similar to the Supreme Court. Sanhedrin consisted of 70 members uh, plus the high priest of the day, so 71. So this guy, Nicodemus, is something special. Religiously, he's a Pharisee, and politically, he's a member, if you will, of the Supreme Court of ancient Israel. So this is no slouch is what I'm trying to get at. Right here. So this is Nicodemus. So here's what happens, verse 2. This man came to Jesus by night. So if I were to ask you, why did he wait until nighttime to go to see Jesus? My guess is that you would say it's because he feared being seen. He did not want his peers, other Sanhedrin members or other Pharisees to know he's hanging out with this renegade, Yeshua, or Jesus. So he waited until sundown so that he could, you know, uh, with stealth, uh, go to see this Jesus. And you may be right if you think that. And, 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 and it holds water. But, but I'm not sure we should be that hard on Nicodemus. He also could have waited until night to see Jesus because he saw this Jesus inundated by people every day. He was doing things that attracted all kinds of, multitudes of people were always around him. He was teaching and he was healing and he was enveloped by seekers and questioners and all the rest. And so he simply might have gone at night thinking at this time he might have had a better chance of an undistracted uh, elongated visit with this Jesus. So I don't know what it is. I just don't think we should... Uh, be unduly critical of this fellow Nicodemus without more uh, substantive reason. Anyway, he comes to Jesus by night and he said to him, Rabbi. Folks, I gotta tell you, that's overwhelming. You, you see, Nicodemus himself is a rabbi. It means teacher. It means someone who's gone through, through study in a recognized school of rabbinical training and your peers recognize you to be an authorized theologian, teacher of truth, you're a rabbi. And for him to refer to this Jesus as a rabbi is amazing because Jesus went to no recognized school of rabbinical training. He was not a Pharisee. He was not a Sadducee. He was, you may be a, who is he? He was the carpenter's son, for crying out loud. He came from a place called Nazareth, which in the day maybe had 150 people. It was a very insignificant kind of place. He didn't come from any big metropolis, go to any 
seminary of notoriety, yet he calls him rabbi. I'm telling you, his fellow Sanhedrin members would not have said that. I'll tell you why. They knew this radical Jesus worked with his hands. He was a carpenter's son. He was blue collar. No rabbi is blue collar. Rabbis work with their heads, not with their hands, you see. So in calling him rabbi, Nicodemus is saying at least this. You, Jesus, are at least my equal. You say, well, that's not much. It is a lot at this point. The other Sanhedrin members had an expression for all ordinary people other than themselves. And it was called Am Haaretz. Am people, ha, the, aretz, the land, people of the land. Who are you? I am a Pharisee and member of the Sanhedrin. I got it. And the rest of you are simply Amharats. You're just ordinary kind of people. Jesus was one of the Amharats. He's a carpenter's son. And yet Nicodemus, the Sanhedrin member, refers to him as rabbi. Here's what he says. Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. How does he know that? Well, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Well, holy moly, Nicodemus has discovered something. He saw what Jesus was doing and attributed what Jesus was doing to power from on high. He said, what you do, no one can do unless God is energizing, enabling, and empowering. And you, you want to applaud Nicodemus. Isn't that great? No, it's not great. He said, I am concluding that you're a teacher from God, but I have to tell you something, folks. That falls far short of who Jesus is. Jesus was not a teacher sent from God. Jesus was God and fleshed. Boy, we're in the season of celebration of that extraordinary event. <laughs> Jesus is God and flashed. You know, Nicodemus thinks he's going to get some points with God. He's not calling him a radical, a traitor, a fraud, or a liar. He's saying complimentary things about Jesus. You've heard them today from many, many people. Don't many people have a proneness to say of Jesus because they don't want to outright reject him in your presence. They say he was a good teacher. He meant well. He stood for good things. Folks, all of that falls short of what Jesus claimed for himself. Jesus claimed to be God and flushed. And any conclusion about Jesus that is less than what he states about himself is wrong, dead wrong. So at this point, Nicodemus is, is absolutely wrong about who Jesus is, but he's interested and, and intrigued. And so here's what happens in verse 3. Jesus answered... When I read this, I thought, oh, I must have missed something in verse 2. Because when it says Jesus answered, does that imply that Nicodemus asked? I mean, you can only provide an answer to a question, right? But can you see any question that in verse 1 or verse 2 Nicodemus put to Rabbi Jesus? He didn't ask him anything. He made a statement. He said, Rabbi, we perceive that you are from God. The stuff you do can only be done by someone who's from God. You're a teacher sent from God. Now the next verse says, and Jesus answered. You know what Jesus answered? His 
thoughts. Well, he answered his thoughts. That's right, because he's God. Not just a teacher sent from God. He's God. He knows the thoughts of humankind. I wonder if Nicodemus at this point is seeking Jesus because he's just exhausted trying to win God's favor through good deeds. You know how tiring that could get? I was talking to uh, wonderful Katya. There's Katya right there. Uh, Katya had a marvelous, she didn't have, she took advantage of an opportunity with a wonderful lady, I think it was her, the, nail, the lady who was doing her nails, to approach a conversation about the Lord Jesus, and it turns out the lady is from a Buddhist background, I hope I'm getting this right, and, uh, and Katya asked her, uh, in so many words, uh, what do Buddhist people believe about how you get to heaven, and this poor lady had no answer, and Katya followed up, and don't you know? Well, we can't know. We, we guess, we try, we wonder. You, you live the best you can. Folks, that's a horrific way to be. It's a, the uncertainty of your eternal destiny, living that way, with that kind of uncertainty, it's enough to drive you crazy. I wonder if that was happening to Nicodemus, because in Judaism, here's what they believed. Even to this day, uh, rabbis teach that we're born with a dual nature, um, a good nature and an evil nature. And um, you want to play into your good nature so that your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. So it's like a scale, and all your, we call them mitzvot, all your good deeds are put on one side of the scale, and all your bad stuff is on the other side of the scale, and one day when you die, you stand before God, and he's going to look at the scales. And you better be sure that your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. Otherwise, uh, you, you're, you don't have God's favor. You will not gain entrance into heaven. So Nicodemus is laboring under this misconception, and he's just trying to kind of clean up his act and do good deeds and, you know, jump through all the religious hoops of the day. But, it, but even Nicodemus, the sage of Israel, a ruler in Israel, if you ask Nicodemus, if Katya asked him the same question, uh, what about heaven? Nicodemus would have to say, I don't know. He would say, Katya, I don't know. No one can know for sure. I'm trying my best. I'm trying every day. I'm, I'm doing all the things, not just that I think the Bible tells me to do, but I'm doing all the things uh, the rabbis tell me, all the oral law. And I wonder if Jesus perceived this guy's exhausted. He's just drained for crying out loud. He's empty. He has no peace. And Jesus, you know what Jesus answered? Not his verbalization. Jesus answered his thoughts. Jesus knew what was on his heart. It was an empty heart. It was a heart that was um, agitated. There was no peace. There was no assurance. Nothing. There was no joy. There's none of those things you have, I have, if we have Christ. And so Jesus answered I think the longing of his soul and said to him, truly, truly. You know, when you see Jesus say, truly, truly, he's really saying, I mean this. <laughs> he, he's saying, I'm not messing around here. He's saying, write this down. He, he's saying, pay attention, listen up. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
Nicodemus must have been thinking, what, how do you, what? I didn't ask, I didn't bring, this is not even my vocabulary. Why are you, why, kingdom of God, born again? How do, and then he's realized, oh, this rabbi is not my equal, he's my superior. He knows of my empty heart. He knows of my quest to be rightly related to God and I'm, I'm losing hope that anyone could even know that. But he's saying, this is how. You can't see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. Now your, your translation might say, unless he is born from above. In the original language, either way, born again or born from above. Here's the point that Rabbi Jesus is making to Rabbi Nicodemus and us. What is needed is a new birth, not a new religion, not a new system of works, not a new philosophy. Do you mind me stepping on some toes? Uh, not a new president. Don't, please don't misunderstand. We're all praying for everyone who serves as our president, as we are instructed to. But the fundamental need of humankind is not any of these things. The fundamental need of humankind is a new birth. So we want to make sure we don't put our hope in a misdirected way in the wrong sources. Jesus is saying to this established professional, this noted theologian, this uh, uh, occupier of political office, you need to be born again or you cannot see the kingdom of God. You know what uh, Jesus said to him? Nicodemus, nothing associated with your natural birth, your first birth, nothing associated with your natural birth is adequate for anyone to enter into the kingdom of God. So no human merit, no human achievement or accomplishment, no intelligence, no specific ethnicity, no specific gender, wealth, uh, morality, no specific religious affiliation, no efforts, no pedigree, none of these things, all of which are associated with one's natural birth, none of these things is the means by which one can see the kingdom of God. Nothing which a person is, nothing which a person has produced is the means of seeing the kingdom of God. Jesus tells a man by natural birth, born Jewish, a man who adhered religiously to the traditions of his faith, a man who attained a position as a member of Israel's governing body, Jesus tells that man of great accomplishment and pedigree, he is not by all that in the kingdom of God. Whoa. I suppose we should make sure we understand what the kingdom of God is at this point. It's not that complicated. It's the realm in which we find the rule and grace of God. That's the kingdom of God. It is the realm in which we find the rule and grace of God. And uh, Jesus said to Nicodemus, you can't get into that realm by any self-effort. Religion, ethnicity, a gender, none of those things, all of which are 
part and parcel of the first birth. To inherit, in other words, the inheritance of a parent, you have to be born of that parent. And I think the Lord is saying to Nicodemus, to inherit the inheritance of God, you have to be born of God. You have to be born again. You have to be born from above. To enter the realm characterized by God's rule and grace, Nicodemus, you must abandon any hope in your religion, in your ethnicity, in your uh, schooling, in your high position, in your sense of self-righteousness, in your self-effort to enter the kingdom of God, you must be born again. Nicodemus was rich. Uh, he was highly educated. He was very religious. He meant well, but the Lord knew that he knew something, in spite of all this, was missing in his life. What about you? Even as we approach the Christmas event, what about you? Is something missing? Jesus wasted no time in getting to the heart of the problem. He told Nicodemus he must be born again. And this timeless Jesus, who knows Nicodemus, knows you and me, and has the same word for us. You must be born again. But, oh God, I've been baptized. Good. But you must be born again. But, oh God, I'm a member of a fine church. Good. But you must be born again. Oh God, I've given money to the Lottie Moon Christmas Fund. Really good. But you must be born again. But, oh, oh, oh God, I was born in a Baptist home. And my, my, my parent, my father was a Baptist preacher. Really great. But you must be born again. Oh, God, I, I, I'm, I'm kind of a good person. I try not to hurt people. I'm generous and I try to serve. These are really good things. But you must be born again. And maybe some would have the audacity to say, I'm white. Good. But you must be born again. I'm a male. Hunky-dory for you, but you must be born again. I got this big stock portfolio my investments have paid off. Yay, mazel tough. But have you been born again? I come to church regularly. Really good. But you must be born again. Folks, we need the new birth. It is a spiritual birth in contrast to the first, which is the natural birth. We need a new nature. We need, we need new values and new thoughts and new purposes. Folks, you see, we, we must be born again. That is not something we do for ourselves. No, no human effort can, can cause us to be born again. This is something that God has to do. God has to cause us to be born uh, again. We are not fit for heaven. Not that Buddhist lady who Katya embraced. And not Nicodemus. Not, not the rabbi I spoke of. Not me. Not any of us. We're not, by virtue of the first birth, we're not fit for heaven. We're not fit for the kingdom of God. We must be born again. We must be born from above. And so many of us, I suppose, have this all wrong. We're, we're seeking reformation 
of ourselves. In fact, soon many of us will even make New Year's resolutions. We're seeking reformation and resolution, but Jesus is saying we need regeneration. Regeneration. We must be, we need a fresh start. We must be born again. Do you, are you sensing that you need a fresh start? Is this something missing? Can you, if you chose to, can you boast about things that are attributed to the, the first birth? Your family and your finances and your accomplishments and your religion. Can you boast about those things? And yet still maybe sense, yeah, but something's missing. I'm, I'm not changed. I'm not new. I'm not at peace inside. I'm not at peace with God. Well, I think Jesus would say to you, just as he lovingly and honestly said to Nicodemus, you must be, you must be born again, you see. One of the greatest lies of Satan, who is the father of lies, it seems to me, is this one. Religion can save you. And so the world is filled with millions of Buddhists and Muslims and Hindus and Jews and all kinds of other religionists who have bought into this lie of Satan, your religious affiliation can save you. I suppose there are some Baptists who think merely on that basis they are saved. This is, this is the most grotesque, perhaps most grotesque, dangerous lie of Satan to buy into that religion can save you. Millions of people in sincerity have bought into this lie, but you can be sincerely wrong. No one's adherence to any religion can save him. Jesus said, you must be born again. To see the kingdom of God, you must be a subject of King Jesus. You must subject yourself to what he has required of you in order to be in his kingdom. And you know what he's required of you? We'll, we'll come upon this, maybe, in John chapter 6, maybe sometime in the distant future. Some people came up to the Lord Jesus. They said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? You see, this is a human inclination. Let's we'll work for our salvation. What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God. Listen, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Ah. This is the hardest thing for proud uh, people like us to do. Believe in the sufficiency of the Savior to save us from sin, to cause us to be born again, and to grant us entrance into the very kingdom of God by faith in him alone. A long time ago, we read John chapter 1, verse 12, a verse familiar to many. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. I would feel terrible if before Christmas we didn't offer to everybody, even here in church, the opportunity to hear from Jesus and answer the question, have you been born again? And it's not that complicated. You can't regenerate yourself, but you can ask the Lord Jesus to do that for you. It's very marvelous to me that he doesn't force himself on us. 
And you could say, what that uh, Stuart guy is talking about bothers me because I don't have it. And you could maybe say, I wish I had what he's talking about. If you're sensing that, then you're sensing God stirring you up in the power of his spirit. He's convicting you. That's what we call it, conviction. He's convicting you of sin and that he judges it and of righteousness, how to be right with him. I pray often that God would disturb listeners sufficiently <laughs> that in their disturbance they would say, oh God, I need the peace of being rightly related to you. So before Christmas, even though maybe you're persuaded uh, that you've done all that is required, and, uh, though it hasn't worked out, you, you know not what else to do to be right with God. You're coming, you're singing, you're giving, you're in church. But Jesus said, no, no, these are all wonderful things, but they're not sufficient to grant one entry into the kingdom of God. You must be born again. Could I ask you to, as we close in prayer. Could I ask you for the sake of privacy uh, to bow your heads and close your eyes? And uh, Could I ask you to engage in the discipline of silence for a mere few seconds and just see if you can sense God stirring you up as the God-man Jesus sought to stir up Nicodemus. See if you sense that in the next few seconds. And if so, could I invite you in silence to utter you see, you don't have to verbalize this because the Lord Jesus, just as he knew Nicodemus' thoughts, knows yours. Cast your thoughts upward if you're disturbed on the inside and say, oh God, I wish to be born again. I wish to see, to experience, to be included in the kingdom of God, your rule, and sphere of grace here and there into eternity. Therefore, come into my life, Lord Jesus, babe born in Bethlehem to suffer and die in my place. Forgive my sin. They separate me from you. Bridge builder, by faith I wish to cross the bridge from separation to reconciliation with God. Oh God, regenerate me. I wish to be born again. And then you could say, that was easy, great God. That was easy for me. Not for you. You paid the price to make it easy for me to be born again. I accept the gift of salvation. And now let me 
live during this Christmas season and always as someone who is born again, someone who is a subject of the king. And then you can close by saying, thank you, I love you, King Jesus. Amen.